share in common. And so I'm hoping today to preach from a passage that Pastor Hanley actually preached about a year and a half ago when we were still doing outdoor service in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But then just to be able to almost uh, apply it towards then this occasion of today for our entire church as we look at Paul's message, Paul's mission and ministry, and also then Paul's hope to be able to be something that unites us in the gospel, but then also unites us in how we can approach and understand and be joyful on a day like this, which without the gospel, there actually isn't that much for which we could hang on to for transcendent and hopeful joy. Because the holiday is cultural, but God's word and his promises are eternal. And so please join me in a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into the passage for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for today. We thank you simply because it is the day that you have made. And that we're called to rejoice and be glad in every single day for which we're able to wake up with life. We thank you, Father, that it's Mother's Day as well. And that there's at least some understanding in our culture, in our history, in our traditions of the value of motherhood, the value of the family relationships that you have ordained with the first people and Adam and Eve and calling them to be one and to bear image bearers of you, to bring you glory. Father, that that motherhood is not just something that is shifting or cultural, but that motherhood is essential in that each of us begin our closest and maybe even now our dearest relationships with our mothers in our lives. But God, I also know, Lord, that as we view this day, that a lot of times it comes with a mixture of burdens and baggage and maybe confusion and brokenness. Father, maybe it is the mothers who are overwhelmed with the things going on in their homes and their lives and relationships. Maybe it's many of us desiring but not yet fully understanding what goes into motherhood and feeling helpless to support and to encourage or even to know what to do. But Father, we thank you, Lord, that what holds us in common, whether it's now or 2,000 years ago in the church of Corinth, where the gospel was preached by the Apostle Paul and a church was begun that rallied around the death and resurrection of Christ as its lifeline, as its message, as its hope, we pray, Lord, that you would give us all something to look forward to today from your word. Lord, may the gospel and the death and resurrection of Christ be all of our hopes, which then allows us to give true meaning and application to a day like today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I don't have a clicker up here, so um, thank you guys in advance audiovisual for helping me out here. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at the very first point, which can be found in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 2, that Paul's message to the Corinthians and to all of the churches for which he was called you know, to begin and to make disciples and to trust God with the results was the crucified Christ. If you go to the next slide, we'll look at the first two verses of chapter 2. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Next slide, please. When you look at the very beginning of verse 1, 
you find then a connection to a relationship that Paul had with the church of Corinth. So just kind of by really quick of an overview to familiarize with who we're looking at here, the church of Corinth to Paul was these four things. Number one, the church of Corinth is a church remembered by Paul. The reason why is because you find in Acts 18 that Paul had begun a foundation of gospel of of the gospel making disciples preaching the death and resurrection of Christ and seeing miracles happen as the Holy Spirit changed people's lives as he found co-laborers and as he then stayed for 18 months to teach and to preach and to shepherd and to care for the people of Corinth. This miraculous start continued with fruitful disciple making and so as Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus he's not speaking just to people he didn't know He is speaking and thinking and praying and mindful of a group of people that he had lived with. That he had come to them because God had led them there. And as he was with them, he lived among them. He knew them. He knew their names and their children and their vocations and what they were up to and how to pray for them and their strengths and weaknesses and where God was working, but also where they needed to surrender. So this is more than an introduction. This is him saying, you know what, guys? Remember me. Because I am remembering you. Secondly, you find that the church of Corinth is a church divided. And we find this mentioned in chapter 1. Primarily because of there being quarrels and arguments leading to specific people who were following teachers of their own liking. Now these teachers, who many of them were Paul's colleagues, they're not necessarily teaching anything wrong. But the problem here is that people embraced tribalism in that instead of finding unity in Christ, they started saying, oh, I am a disciple of Paul. I am a disciple of Apollos. And so by virtue of who I learn from and who I'm trying to be and who I look up to, we know more, we are better, and we are greater than you. This was a major problem to Paul. And he addressed that and brought it up in chapter one, that instead of claiming the name of Christ and then being God's people in the city of Corinth, united to make disciples, they were all about the conflicts and what divided them within that church. Thirdly, this was a church that was struggling. You find throughout the course of 1 Corinthians that there were a lot of issues that Paul was addressing. And the reason why this letter was even written was because People have been writing to him as he has been in Ephesus or in other places presenting specific issues, theology issues, moral issues, practical issues. And he then was using all of those letters that he received to be able to respond to them in 1 Corinthians, which, by the way, wasn't even the first letter that he wrote. This is a series of letters that he wrote. This happened to be the first one that we have in the canon along with 2 Corinthians. But this is not the first letter that Paul wrote. The people in Corinth were struggling with compromise as they were surrounded by a strong pagan culture. They were not united, as was mentioned in chapter 1. They had preferences that divided them, and they also had theological confusion with worship practices, with ordinances, with social customs, and the church was struggling, and Paul wanted to help. And finally, this was a church that was powerless. Now, let me be clear. It's not hopeless as Paul was writing this. That's the reason why even in chapter 1, he alluded to what is the power of God. 
which is the gospel, and God changing the lives of people, rather than your customs and your preferences and your conflicts. That is not powerful. But you can see how if the church is the way that Paul had described it and understood it to be, this church can be on a slippery slope to where at some point they would be powerless in their witness, in their testimony, in their impact. Because they would be more focused on what separated them and what was different about each group and faction and how they wanted to do things differently than it was about sharing the gospel, living it out in spirit and in truth and being a lighthouse to the people of Corinth. Now in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul makes this distinction. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul has not lost hope. He's not said, you guys are gone. You guys are dead. The candlestick is going to be taken away from him. He's not saying any of that, but he is recognizing this church that he has grown to know over time and seeing the flaws, the weaknesses, and shortcomings and saying, you know what? You need God's power more than you need to win an argument or a fight or be seen as the greater teacher, the greater tribe, the greater ministry team. You need God and you are not without hope because of what Christ can do and how God continues to save. So that leads to the next verse and a half. If you could go to the next slide, please. Paul's ministry then is described from the second half of verse 1 to verse 2. And he is doing this intentionally. Okay? He is choosing this route of not focusing on something and then focusing on something else as his ministry strategy and approach. Even as he is talking from afar in writing this letter, but he is referring back to how he did things and how he will continue to do things. What will he not do? Well, in the second half of verse 1, he said, He did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. What will Paul not do? He will not come aiming to impress you with how smart he is, with how much he knows, with how charismatic he could be, with how clever his arguments are. His arguments... His writings, they make sense. He is clear. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But that's not the angle. He's not coming to say, look at me. Forget all those other teachers. Really, it's, it's me, guys. And I'm writing from Ephesus to, you know, to put the, my thumb down on everyone else. He's not coming to win a power grab. He's not coming to exert personal authority. He's not coming to impress everyone else with this amazing letter. He's not coming because he's able to stir up the emotions of the people in a way that has them doing what he wants. Or that he's using his reputation alone as an apostle that has seen Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus as the means of claiming allegiance. At that time also, especially in the city of Corinth, there were people for which their vocations, their jobs were to be professional orators and debaters and teachers and philosophers. He's not even saying, you know what, I'm going to employ their tactics so that you guys would be impressed by what I have to say. You know, sometimes things don't change. Don't we live in a world impacted by influencers, people using their reputations and how they come across and how shiny they are and how great they are to try to get us to believe what would make us happy, what we want and what we need? It's not that different at that time because these are things, issues of the heart. 
just like them, we can be easily amazed and swayed by surface-level qualifications or charisma. But that is what Paul chose not to do in the past and what he continues to choose not to do in writing this letter. Instead, in verse 2, you find that this was his approach and what he was committed to. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is his focal point. This is the grand narrative. This is all he's going to focus on, although it's not the only thing he's going to talk about. But this is what Paul will point to as being the answer, the solution, the hope in everything. And what he will offer then as solutions and compromises and wisdom all stem from the fact that Christ is crucified and risen to live forevermore. Other translations speak of Paul being determined to know th- something, nothing among you. So there's this focal kind of just narrow-mindedness to say, you know what, how does the gospel make sense of what I'm going to tell you? And if it's not related to the death and resurrection of Christ, you know what, I don't have much to offer you. In the New Living Translation, it looks at it from the other perspective where the translators say that Paul wanted to forget everything except Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that he has amnesia. It means that the weightier matters all relate to the work of Christ and the salvation that comes through trusting in Christ and not any secondary means of being affirmed, of being encouraged, of being popular. Why? Because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The death and resurrection of Christ is directly connected to how God, who made the universe, who has a plan to glorify himself through rescuing sinners from the mire of death and desperation into the kingdom of his son, belonging to him as a spiritual family, that power that changes lives is anchored in the good news of the cross in the resurrection of Christ. You know, the world calls this foolishness. They did 2,000 years ago, and oftentimes they do that today. Why is that? Because that news in itself is extremely unimpressive when you're comparing it to the messenger. It doesn't give any more credit to the messenger. It doesn't give any more powers or persuasion to the messenger per se, even at Paul's time. Who is Jesus? Well, he is a dead leader. He is ashamed outlaw. He is weak compared to special teachers that know secret ways of interpreting the Bible. There's learned philosophers who have given their whole lives to be able to speak and teach. And who is Paul if all he's holding on to is the death and resurrection of Christ? And there's certainly powerful politicians and kings that have sway and authority over people for which if you speak of the name of Christ, not only are you in dangerous territory, your life could be also threatened. But then why this power? Why this emphasis? Why this narrow-mindedness to the death and resurrection of Christ? It's because there's a clear understanding from Paul and from Scripture of what our real problem is. See, if our real problem relates to just one another, if it only relates to our government and to our comforts and to our preferences— and to who gets our way or what politician is sitting in a seat, 
then sure, use all of the wits, all of the might that you can muster in order to be on top and have that power and have the authority to get what you want and you think you need. But what if our problem and the real problem that every human being has is primarily spiritual? What if it's beyond what you can see? What if what separates us from God is our greatest problem? What if a sinful heart that drives us towards selfishness, towards God and towards one another is our real problem? What if what we need is not just power and authority and people to agree with us and follow us and approve of us, but what we need is a new heart? What we need is to be rescued. What we need is to go from being a sinner to a saint, which is how Paul addressed all of these churches. He called them saints, not because they had some weird title or position in the afterlife, but they're saints because they've been set apart by Christ and their trust in his death and resurrection. So at the end, the power of God then is what's needed to accomplish the work of God, which changes a sinful heart into one with the desire to follow, walk, and to please him and to love other people. No man or woman can do that. No clever argument could change the heart. No set of circumstances or lined up authority is able to transform on the inside what you're all well and me too able to hide from other finite creatures, human beings like ourselves. God knows the heart and God could change the heart. In chapter 1, at the end, verses 30 to 31, Paul says this, but it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If only God could change lives and transform hearts, that's the power that we want and need. And then when he works, and the Holy Spirit touches and shapes and transforms people, then God gets the glory. See, Paul doesn't need the glory because he knows that God's power leads to God's glory. So he doesn't need it for himself. That's why his message then is always about going deeper into what Christ has accomplished. Now then, let's go to the next point. Paul then points to himself as the example of being an imperfect messenger. There's a perfect message that saves and transforms, but he himself is an imperfect messenger messenger. He says this in verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. You see in the very beginning that Paul points again to how he was with the Corinthians, that he knows them, that they know him, that there was this personal relationship with them and that he loved them as their shepherd, that he knew them and he cared for them deeply, which is why he continues to engage and write to them as they write to him. But see, because he was with them, guess what? They also knew him. So then they saw and completely understood what he was saying about himself. That Paul said he was weak in fear and much trembling. Now, some commentators say that he may have some kind of physical deformity or thorn, 
certainly, but I think he's speaking more to that than just physical. That there was an aspect of Paul in his ministry, in his persona, in his testimony that just revealed that it wasn't all about him. That he didn't have it all together. That he was sometimes tired. That he was certainly overshadowed by others. And he had great reason not to put confidence in himself. Even as he is writing this letter, he is in Ephesus. And what's the first thing that he said in chapter 1? Those other teachers are causing conflicts and quarrels among you. Where are those other teachers? Possibly in Corinth. Where is Paul? In Ephesus. What a limited influence he has, if you see it from that point of view. So he doesn't come to the Corinthians as a person that has it all together at all, in addition to any physical ailments that he may have. Not only that, he talks about then how he has been doing ministry, that his reputation and his approach was not like the popular and famous orators and philosophers and polished teachers. But the thing is, he knew that. So he knew that it wasn't about him, that there was no reason to be proud, that there was no reason to point to himself and look at how important I am, but you need to focus on Christ because I am not much of a messenger in comparison. Paul was constantly pointing to Jesus. Why? Because he knew where the power of God came from. At the end of this short passage, he speaks about how his hope is in the demonstration of the spirit and the power of God, which when he's able to look back at what God has done in Corinth during his 18 months there and continues to do, God exerted and demonstrated his power mightily, even through someone by his own description as weak, as non-confident, as secondary as he is in comparison to others. God built up the church in Corinth through someone weak like him. God will not stop what he chooses to do and possibly may continue to do so through someone weak like him. So this is his testimony, and he stands on it in a very weird, he's like boasting on his own weakness, but he also speaks about how the true boast is in God in 1 Corinthians, right? Not in yourself, but in God. And so this imperfect messenger, but yet with a perfect message of the gospel, then has a hope for the people in Corinth. If you'll go to the next slide, the final point is that his hope for them, even as he's writing from afar, is that they will have enduring faith. Enduring faith. Verse 5 says this, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Tapping into the God's power again. The only power that can change and transform and transform a, saint, a sinner to a saint and to make someone who is separated from God to a son or a daughter, he points to that again as the source of help for the church in Corinth. Notice how he says, your faith. And that's where we all need to begin, don't we? It's not your faith like a very abstract, nebulous, just spray it out there because you happen to sit in this church that it's your faith or your gospel. No, it's, it's your faith. There's personal ownership of the church, but then the personal ownership of each saint in trusting in Christ and being a work in progress in his supernatural power. 
Because after all, personal, lasting, transformative faith can only happen by God's grace, power. And this is Paul's hope for them. That they would have enduring faith. I imagine that his hope as he's writing this letter and sending it out would be, you know what? That the people in Corinth will read this and continue to hope in Christ and be found faithful. Five years from now, ten years from now, a generation from now. And continue to make disciples who are being transformed in the power of God in the same way. So the big idea for this passage for today is this. Faith anchored in the crucified Christ will endure life's tribulations and raise saints to eternal glory by the power of God. Let me say that again. Faith anchored in the crucified Christ will endure life's tribulations and raise imperfect saints to eternal joy by the power of God. So the gospel is what we all need. God's power is what we all need. And whether you are a parent that participated in family dedication, whether you are a parent here in our midst, or whether you are a single person, whether you are somebody that is a youth that is here in our midst, we all need the gospel and we all need God's transformative power. Now, with the big idea back there, if you allow me to just suggest a few applications. In verses 1 and 2, as Paul focused in and zoned in on what his message is, Christ crucified, and that's what he's all about, ruling out everything else as being secondary, not unimportant, but secondary, but his main message is the gospel I want us to remember that as a church, FCBC Walnut, that that is our mission and vision as well. Because we're about being a vibrant church of disciple makers that makes disciples locally and globally. And so our church can't be primarily about politics, about publicity and fame, or just about programs. Even as you come in every week, you hear about all the wonderful things that are going on, we're not primarily about those things, but I pray that our understanding and conviction is that those things, however it is, that brings honor and glory to God and clarification and fidelity to how we live out our faith and how we impact others and how we preach the gospel, that those things are anchored in the death and resurrection of Christ. First and foremost, you should be able to come into this church, worship with us. You should be able to show up on Friday night, go to a group or a fellowship. You should be able to attend any of our community groups and small groups and participate in our athletic events or our casual gatherings and know that what sets us apart is Christ crucified. That is what gives us hope. That's what gives us identity. That is what gives us something to live for and something to surrender to. We need to be about that. And if you're you here today and you've either never heard of the gospel for yourself or you have never put your faith in Christ and to repent and to trust in him to save you from your sins, I want to encourage you to not leave this room without asking. Talk to the person next to you. Ask them. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about this hope that your church is about. Ask them. And if they don't have the answer, well, you know, talk to one of us or email next steps at fcbcwalnut.org. We will gladly respond to you and interact with you so that you can know this Jesus and his gospel that our church 
is living for. Come find us. We want to get to know you. Secondly, I think about moms. You know, Paul said in verse 3, I was with you. The first and often the closest relationship that all of us have, and certainly there's exceptions where maybe we don't have as much a relationship with our mom or uh, stepmom or, you know, maybe, um, you know, there was different circumstances that took place, but overwhelmingly our first relationships are with our moms in life that they have played that role. I was with you. Through the ups and downs, through the successes and failures, through the breakdowns, the conflicts, and through the joys. So moms, stepmoms, people with children in the home, people with children in your lives, you are irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. Because you have been with those that God has put in your life. And we know that there's difficult ages in every stage. You know, when you see the family, dedication families come up, you know, they're concerned about diapers and sleep and all these things, making sure that their kids don't run across the street with cars going by. Of course. But then the kids will grow up, and then you're concerned about their academics and their development. And then you're concerned about their relationships and their walk with God. And then you're concerned about their vocation and their mission and purpose in life, as Pastor Hanley alluded to. Moms, you are irreplaceable. And I say that recognizing that the church is also irreplaceable. But moms, you are irreplaceable. So given what was said today from this passage, please give your children Jesus at every age and stage. If there's going to be one thing on a checklist, that's all I'm going to say today. But it's not about you, right? Just like it wasn't about Paul. It's not about you doing it perfectly, successfully, without blemish. It is simply constantly pointing your kids and the ones in your care in your life to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Even in weakness, fear, and trembling. Even if you're not able to say it with articulate words. Even if you're not able to say it with fluent language. Even if you're not even able to demonstrate it because there's conflict in the home or in your marriage or in your relationships with others. Give your kids Jesus at every age and every stage, please, because you're irreplaceable. There's so many distractions, aren't there? Now, sometimes we put a legalistic demand on our kids. We want them to perform, and we think that that gives us a feeling of self-worth or success. We certainly compare our kids with other people's kids sometimes. What have they done? What have they accomplished? Who do they know? You know, sometimes we even get messages from the culture that it's about our kids' happiness, guys. You just want them to be happy. But happiness is fleeting. Joy is lasting. And joy is found in Christ alone. So all of these things compete for the attention and the affection of your children at every age and every stage. And so moms... Please give them Jesus at every age and stage. This is where we come in as the church family. We are a spiritual family. We don't have these dividing lines. Oh, that's your kid. That's your problem. No, that's a kid in our church, and that is my problem. And I don't say that that's a problem and that someone is bad. But you know the saying, 
it's not a real problem until it is your problem. Look around at the kids at every age and stage. As a church family, I beg and plead of you to give them Jesus with your words and with your actions and be patient in doing so. Let's not be tribal about this either. You know, sometimes the reason why Mother's Day feel weird is because it seems like mothers are normal and if you're not a mother, then there's something wrong with you or something weird with you or you're in a bad marriage, a bad relationship, you don't get along with your kids or something wrong with you. No, no. The church is the place where everyone can come in, be united and found under a saving, risen Christ and have their primary identity. Yes, you have many other ways to describe you, but your primary identity is as a child of God. Not your relationship status, how many children you have, whether you're married. No. We are a spiritual family, brothers and sisters, first. Finally, for the youth and for the collegians and, and the young people in this room, following Jesus is a long road ahead. And maybe I have in mind even very specifically those of you that just got baptized. And sometimes we have the misconception, oh yeah, I've arrived, I'm there. You're not. It's not related to your self-worth. You're not because your life surrendered to Christ is your life surrendered to Christ in fullness. For all the years that God will give to you, you're called to follow him. We don't have time for this, but I have brought this up. I'm reading this with uh, Tobias right now. It's, it's uh, a new version of the Pilgrim's Progress drawing. But I will show you this. In there is this beautiful map. It's all the different destinations. At the top is the where Christian wants to be, right? He's carrying this burden, but he reads about this place called the Celestial City where he can be in company and relationship with a king. That's at the top. But you know what? All of the struggles, even before he came to know and follow Jesus, are all in this little bottom part right here. He walks through the narrow gate. He lays his burdens at the cross. He goes through a lifetime, what it seems like, of burdens, of struggles, of distractions, all the way through. This is the part of getting baptized and joining the church. This little part. All of this, with the river being the final dividing line of physical death into the celestial city, this is the Christian life. And you will have just as many people trying to steer you away from faithfulness to God as you would have people that also God sends to support you and encourage you and inspire you simply to live out the power of God in your life and to be faithful. So youth collegians, young adults, all of us young in the faith, and family dedication families, when you see your little babies that you're just kind of you know, trying to just calm down and just trying to get them to nap. We're just in the beginning, everyone. And this is the reason why we need one another to follow Jesus. It's not a one-shot deal. Everything happens so that you will grow in your love for God, dependence on the Holy Spirit, commitment to Christian community, and also a supernatural yearning for heaven. So let's believe in God's word and what it has to say. Let's put our hearts trusting in the gospel every step of the way. Let's continue to walk the narrow path together, even knowing that sometimes the wider path 
looks much more tempting, popular, and inviting. Let's walk the narrow path. And then finally, let's not settle and give up and surrender until we are in the presence of the king in heaven forever. Let's all hold on to that this morning. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for today. Again, because it's a new day for us to depend on you and to trust in what Christ has accomplished, to be that power that enables us to walk out of these doors filled with joy, purpose, and willingness to persevere. Father, we thank you, Lord, that no matter how long we've been a Christian, how mature we are, how great and learned we can be in your word, Father, that all of that just gives us the opportunity to do more, but not just by our works, but by our intention of being near to you. Help us, God, to be people who are desiring for your power to work mightily in our lives. And we do pray also that you would save the children in our midst, that you would save any sinner here in our midst that has not put their faith in Jesus, God, so that we as a church family can run and walk and journey with one another towards you in this earthly life. We thank you, Father, that all those you hold in your hands, Christ will never lose. Help us, God, to put our hope, our enduring hope and transcendent hope in your power, in his work. In Jesus' name I pray.